podcast one production. Everyone likes a good night's sleep. But those nights seem to be getting further away. Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix, recently said his biggest competitor wasn't any rival TV network or video game. It was sleep. And that tells us that we've reached peak attention. We literally have no more time to give. It has to come from somewhere, and we're stealing it from our sleep. That sounds okay. It's not. Sleep rejuvenates. We all know that. But we also depend on regular sleep and regular sleep cycles to provide the time and space for dreams to come. And that, we're learning, is falling afoul of our desire to do more and be more. The abstract to a paper published last year lays it all out. The author of Dreamless, The Silent Epidemic of REM Sleep Loss, says, We are at least as dream-deprived as we are sleep-deprived. Many of the health concerns attributed to sleep loss result from a silent epidemic of REM sleep deprivation. REM dream loss is an unrecognized public health hazard that silently wreaks havoc with our lives, contributing to illness, depression, and an erosion of consciousness. When we cut away our sleep, we sacrifice dreaming time, and our minds become less capable. The less we dream, the less we're conscious. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this third series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to liminal dreaming pioneer Jennifer Dumper about the rarely explored boundary between waking and sleep and how that can unlock a whole new frontier in our dreams, our imagination, and our consciousness. We're dreaming our way into the next billion seconds. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little lives are rounded with a sleep. That's Shakespeare touching on one of the most profound and yet most common experiences for human beings, which is to dream. And it's one of these things that you think maybe dreaming hasn't changed. Maybe we haven't learned more. Maybe there isn't new things happening in dreaming. And you'd be wrong. And we're talking to someone who has really been exploring what's happening to dreaming. Jennifer Dimper is a researcher, a writer, a teacher in something they're calling liminal dreaming, and we'll ask what that is in a second, which is helping us to understand that we can have a different relationship to our dreams than we've had before. Jennifer, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So what is liminal dreaming? Liminal dreaming is what happens in the space between awake and asleep. So when you're falling asleep, it's hypnagogia, and when you're waking up, it's hypnopompnea. And it's most of us are quite familiar with this experience. You have that hallucinatory, whirling, psychedelic space just behind your eyes when you're trying to stay awake or as you're drifting off 
at night, you have that dreamy, am I thinking, wait, no, I'm dreaming, wait, it's moving back and forth uh, between one and the other and coasting that line when you're waking up. There's a lot to say about it objectively in terms of brain waves. There's a lot to say subjectively in terms of what the experience is, but basically it's the boundary zone between awake and asleep. I mean, you're using words, certainly hypnagogia is an, is an older word. We've known about that word for some time. Hypnopopia I hadn't heard until quite recently. Is this something that's just sort of being recognized as a thing or has it been well documented in the past? Hypnagogia is definitely a lot more well-known. People have been writing about it forever. Uh, and people have been using the space, like harnessing the space for creativity and problem solving and healing. With with the classic example being Frederick Kekula. Yeah, right, exactly, who who uh, realized the structure of the benzene ring in A Hypnagogic Dream, or um, Thomas Edison and Salvador Dali, who independently of each other came up with the same practice for harnessing hypnagogia. So uh, what they would do, uh, Edison had uh, two balls that he would hold in his hands, and Dolly had a big brass Spanish key. He's very specific about it. Of course he and, did. Uh, yeah. And each man would sit when, when sleepy, each man would sit in like a very comfortable chair in which he could lean way back and get comfortable and hold either the balls in two hands or the key in one hand over top of a metal plate or metal plates and go into the hip drift into the hypnagogic space and as soon as they started to fall asleep which is when brain waves go into theta as soon as they actually started to fall asleep of course they would drop what they were holding what he was holding and it would hit the plates and wake them up and Dali kept a sketch pad and Edison kept a notepad and they would jolt awake and write sketch or write down Ideas. So really capture that moment and what was front of mind in that moment. In Figuring, that, in right, 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 exactly. Mining the hypnagogic space for... And that's simple. Ideas. I mean, that's so simple. Any of us could do that. Yeah. It's really simple. You get a garbage can lid or whatever. Or a, hold a, a bell. Right, or hold, hold a bell. Hold a bell in your hand. Yeah, exactly. I like to sleep with a voice-activated recorder. So you, what you can buy is a phone app for, you know, a couple bucks and just on the bed next to me. I've actually learned at this point to talk through hypnagogia. So I can... Um, so you can be in that in-between state and still just talk. Mumble through it. Like, right. oh, well, there's, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of flappers and they're raising their arms and waving them around and now it's trees at night. Get that kind of thing. I have hours of, hours of footage of me you know, I'm doing that kind of thing. And so I will do the same thing with like problem solving or creativity, kind of go into that space. Hypnagogia, so rather hypnopotmia, is much less well-known. Partly it's a lot more difficult to study because you have to have been asleep for three or four hours and to experience hypnopompnea. You know, there's in, in a normal chart of a night's sleep, there's like the the five hours that you go through phases of deep sleep and a lot of a lot of the stuff that you physically need out of sleep 
And then you start to go into long, and then it's just REM and theta going back and forth. And you have to get there before you're going to have hypnopompia. And REM and theta, REM is the uh, rapid eye movement. Everyone knows that them, theta is a, is a brainwave state. Theta is a brainwave state. And for as adults, most of our sleep is in theta. Really, really deep meditators go into theta. It's of all the brainwave patterns, it's the only one that doesn't have a lot of dreams. Um, if you're if you're talking about brainwaves, so objectively, when you're talking about what are different types of dreams or phases of sleep, you're really talking about EEG. So right now, you and I are in a pretty involved conversation, you know, um, and we're uh, we're probably uh, in um, uh, beta. We're probably really ex- somewhat excited. Our brainwaves are, you know, m- you know, moving more rapidly, and then we will, you know, so alpha, beta, and then we go and and most brainwave states. So alpha is you're starting to get really sort of sleepy and you're chill. If you're daydreaming during the day or when you're really just kind of sitting back and whatever, and then you go through hypnagogia. Um, which is the weirdest brainwave state that there is. I'll come back to that in a second. And then you go to theta. And now theta is starting to, to really slow down. So you're more like four to eight hertz, you know, which is waves per second, um, as opposed to uh, alpha when you're in more like eight to 14. And then you, if as the night progresses, and then from theta, you go down into delta, which is like 0.5 to 3. Very slow. That's deep sleep. Um, that's very hard. If you ever get awoken and it's very disorienting and you don't know where you are, you probably were in delta. Gotcha. Um, so like if you hear a loud noise or something that wakes you yeah, up. Yeah, or somebody shakes you or right. wakes you or whatever. A lot of parasomnias happen in delta, sleepwalking, sleep talking, night terrors, that kind of thing. And then there's REM. And interestingly, REM, the brainwaves in REM are um, are like the brainwaves in a waking state. Um and so those are sort of high up. And so uh, if you're talking about hypnagogia and hypnopompnia, uh, what, you know, some brainwave states like alpha have two different waveforms. Uh, hyp- hypnagogia has like nine. Wow. And it's the shortest period of time that we have. So unless you've trained yourself, you're, you spe- you're spending like 4% of your time, like maybe 10 minutes. Right, because something. it's on the way in. It's not you're staying here. It's like it's the, it's the, it's the foyer to the evening sleep. And hypnagogia does come, both hypnagogia and hypnopompnia come from hypnos, which is the Greek for sleep. And gagia is going toward and pompe is moving away, like pomp and circumstance going away, you know. And so... Um, the hypnagogia is the going in. And so it's, inc- it's incredibly chaotic. There's all of these different brainwave states. And when your leg kicks or your arm jerks, a myoclonic jerk, that's when you know that you're in hypnagogia. And hypnagogia and hypnopompnia together, these, these middle states between awake and asleep are what uh, make up liminal dreaming. Because we do dream in these we states. We dream in these states. Yeah. And, and we have, and they're very different kinds of dreams. They tend to not be as subject-object. 
So, uh, so it's not about I'm watching something happen or something's happening to me. And more the latter. Something's happening to me. So I am a subject moving through the objective world. You know, so even in REM, which are the, which is what most people mean by dreams, and all these different sleep stages have their different characteristic kinds of dreams. So REM, which is what most people mean when they mean dreams, when they talk about dreams, is me. It's like it's like my, wake, my waking experience. I'm walking through the world, and I'm a person, and there's a world out there, and things are happening to me, and I'm interacting with things. In liminal dream states, in hypnagogia and hypnopatnia, it tends to much more frequently be a swirling psychedelic space in which there is happening, but there's not necessarily self and other. I mean, as you get deeper and deeper into the experience, there does start to be more dreamlike experiences, but there's a lot of uh, points of light or a pattern or something is happening, but it's not like it's I'm, it's not like I'm there. It's like the experience is the experience. And right. So in other words, I mean, to put it in sort of, I guess, almost psychological language, there's no ego to experience exactly. it, right? It's just, it's sort of, it's just the experience. It's just unfiltered. That's that exactly sense. right, which is one of the things that's so interesting about the space. And it's been used, one of the other ways that it's been used traditionally is as sort of meditation space. So for example, Yoga Nidra, which is a very... Um, well, it's one of those practices like asana yoga, which is kind of very old and kind of from the 60s and 70s. And, uh, but, but a lot of the idea is med- being brought through a nidra, which is a, you know, kind of a script, you know, where you're bringing people, being brought into a hypnagogic space. And the idea is that it's the deepest state of, relaxation, but it's also the place where you have a very different relationship with your ego. Like your ego kind of gets out of the way and you can start to have these other experiences of being. And so it's a, it's a way to reach these amazing states, partly because you're so relaxed and because your ego gets out of the way. And without having to use any drugs or anything else, it's just that this is something that's unique to your body. It's just something your body just does by itself. So in that sense, it's also very safe. Very much so. And I, um, the endogic high, I, um, I, I do, uh, sometimes give a talk depending on the context, you know, some of the places where I speak, I speak at festivals and, um, you know, things like the Breaking Convention Conference, you know, um, I mean, I'm on the board of Arrowhead, so, I, you know, I'm in a world where people are talking about psychedelics and those kinds of experiences. And one of the amazing things about hypnagogia and hypnopompia is that you can have this amazing, wild, off the, you know, charts, psychedelic experience that's just naturally produced by your own body. And when you learn how to fall into it, like... You know, I, I, I'm a little self-indulgent. And a couple times a day, at least, I will just kind of close my eyes and drift in, drift, like drift into it. And I'll have this amazing 15-minute psychedelic experience. So dream tripping. I give a talk that I call dream tripping. I mean, this is one of the secrets after I think I turned 40 was that I will go down for a nap most afternoons, which is just 15 minutes. And it's really just enough to get me to that hypnagogic state. And I don't tend to mine it because it's so refreshing and also because I know it's just good for me that I come back to my work and I'm fully present in it. 
but it's exactly that. And it feels like that's a skill. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I can't nap. It's really bad. It wrecks me. And I think that there's a way to be able to do it that actually brings you good things rather than just the word, rather than slowing you down. Absolutely. And I was actually, before this kind of became my primary practice, I was one of those people who couldn't nap. I have, um, so there's lark and owl chronotypes, you know, and it's all about your circadian rhythm, which is, uh, which scientists think is inherited. And if you're a lark chronotype, then you pop right up in the morning and you're wide awake. You know, you're freshest when you start working. You're probably the first one who goes to sleep at the party. Uh, and you probably don't experience much hypnopotmia. Um, but you're a great, like, hypnagogia is really where your dreams this, are. This sounds very much like me. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm the opposite. I'm an owl Chronotype. I'm the last one up at the party. I I'm very groggy when I wake up. It takes me an hour to, as you know, it takes me an hour to open my eyes and wake up and say anything reasonable. Um, and um, I can work for really long stretches of time. And I do really well in hypnopnea. But people who have owl chronotypes don't do well with naps because once you fall asleep, like once you go past hypnagogy into theta, then you've got to do that process again, which is really difficult. So what I've learned is I nap all the time now is just I surf the edge. I surf hypnopompnia. I spend, you know, I spend, um, rather hypnagogia, I spend all this time in hypnagogia and I have these amazing dream experiences. And I think it's great to mine them, by the way, but I think it's also just an amazing experience. And when people talk about sleep deprivation, that we're a culture that's that's really sleep deprived, we're also really dream deprived. So before we talk about dream deprivation, since people are probably listening, going, okay, how can I start to extend and explore my own either hypnagogia, going into sleep, or hypnopopia, coming out of sleep? Is there any sort of simple technique that you can give people to help them sort of just start to get stuck into that? So hypnagogia is easier to find, partly because you can do it it's kind of coming from conscious mind into dream as opposed from dreaming mind into consciousness as hypnopomia is. So hypnagogia is easier to find. And there's um, an exercise that I call the feedback loop. It's my, my sort of most find the space exercise. It's often the first one I teach people. And uh, what you do is when you're feeling sleepy, uh, you can do it when you're going to bed at night. Um, you can do it if you have a dip of energy in the afternoon, whenever you feel like you might be able to go into the space. And what you do is you lie back and get as relaxed as you can. It doesn't matter what position you're in. Get as relaxed as you can and then exhale. And as you exhale, exhale all of the tension out of your body. Let yourself drop a level into further relaxation and let the exhale start to animate the beginning of the dream. For most people, it will be something visual, but for a lot of people, it will be sound. So wherever, whatever works better for you, sound um, or vision, the, the beginning of what a dream is. And it might, you might be imagining, it might be your imagination that starts the process. Don't expect it to fully come from the outside. Like you're basically, you're letting your mind drift. So let all of the energy that you have exhaled animate the very beginning 
of the hypnagogic dream. And then let that feedback loop come back into you. Ex inhale the dream. And then exhale again all the tension in your body. Let your body relax even further and let all of that energy and tension that you're exhaling animate the hypnagogic dream and let it be a feedback loop, you know, where you're inhaling the energy that you're getting from the dream and you're exhaling your own bodily tension and energy into the dream and let it take shape. And it might just start out as little points of light and might move into colors and a little bit of ideas. Maybe even you might see faces turning towards you. That's a common one. You might hear the beginnings of some sort of uh, the alien radio station or some sort of distant sound that you know isn't quite right. And just let it sort of have its own energy and, and ease into it. And that's kind of the best beginning exercise. And then once we get into it, is it a matter of then just getting used to it to be able to extend that rather than just having sort of this four minute run, hey, hello, goodbye. How can we, is that just practice based that we can make that run longer? Exactly. Once you learn where it is, then you can, and you can settle into it, you find where it is. One of the things about hypnagogia is everyone has this experience, almost everyone has this experience naturally. When I explain to people what hypnagogia is, they're like, oh yeah, that happens to me all the time. And of course it does, it happens to everybody. Unlike something like lucid dreaming, which is which takes a lot of work and practice, everyone already knows how to liminal dream. And really it's more just about settling into the space and not just thinking about it as a through, like, you know, it's just like the train station. I'm just here while I'm waiting for the sleep. You're like, actually, this is now my destination and I'm going there. And once you learn where it is, and you learn to linger there, then you can really open up the space. And it's it's actually very, very, very easy to find. And I guess this is the thing. If you want to make the analogy of a train station, some train stations are kind of boring and dull and there's nothing on the walls. And then some train stations, like the train stations Paris, are beautiful. They're yeah. works of art. And maybe when we get to linger in that space more, we get to go, oh, there's that beautiful piece of art there or that there's that beautiful symphony playing over here. So is that kind of the possibility here that the longer we're in the space, the more interesting we can find that space? Very much so. I really like the analogy of surfing. Um, and when I first learned about how chaotic the EEG waveform state is of hypnagogia, how, you know, so you're over here and you're in the conscious world and you're, you know, the EEG is pretty steady. And now you're over here and you're in sleep world and and the EEG is pretty steady. But as you're moving between the two, it's really chaotic. So if you think of the land, consciousness is the land and the unconscious is the ocean, which are both very common metaphors, then um, hypnagogia is the coast, right? And it's where things are really chaotic. It's where you surf. Yeah, you have a foot in both worlds. You have a foot in both worlds. I mean, you actually, when you're in a hypnagogic state and also a hypnopomic state, you're aware that you're dreaming often. Like, you know that you're in, but, um, but you're also in a dream state. But it's not like a, a lucid dream, which is a REM experience, because, because you're not in a story in the same way, you're not controlling it in the same way. Like, there's no way that you can control it. It's so fast-moving and wild. I mean, to try to bring back what 
has happened to you in a hypnagogic or a hypnopompic dream is very difficult. You can get little teeny bits of the experience, but it changes so fast and so wild and kaleidoscopic and fast moving. Um, so there's, you're not, you are not controlling that. All right. So let's now tie this back into something you mentioned right before the break, which is around the fact that we live in a culture that is driving us to be more and more sleep deprived, which then means that we're actually being more and more dream deprived. And that that actually sounds scarier than being sleep deprived. Like sleep deprived, we've all been sleep deprived, but being dream deprived, what does that really mean for us? For a lot of people, the, the way that we really get most um, in tune with our unconscious mind as through dreams. And there are people who, you know, people who are very serious, meditators, or there are people who um, have uh, practices through any realm of substances, be they the subtle allies, you know, I mean, of caffeine and alcohol to things that, you know, are, are more powerful. Or, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that people try to reach, or, you know, therapy, but everyone dreams. Everyone dreams and we go in there and we have this non-rational um, experience of what is in our own psyches. You know, we're, we're sort of like meeting and seeing our own psyches and not controlling the experience. And it's not about it being useful. It's not about it being money-making or furthering my agenda or whatever. It's actually like the other side of the coin where you're really settling in to letting your unconscious have its romp and where you're getting to know yourself both, you know, in the deeper, your own more personal universe as well as out in the world. And people tend to really privilege the waking, the Apollonian as opposed to the Dionysian, the reason, you know, and, and so even the way even the way we think about dreams, people talk about um, uh, whether it's therapy. So is it, it, it's only harnessed in usefulness to the waking mind or even lucid dreaming, which can be really fun and interesting, but where it's the, the waking rational mind right, it's getting is stuff stepping done. in and taking over, yeah. you know, whatever, as opposed to just letting go and going, exploring what's happening inside you. And some people do this in all these different kinds of ways, but everybody does it through dreams. So even this way that's, you know, totally natural and part of our experience is is being pulled away from us in the wake of of this world. So we're getting less time to learn from ourselves than yeah. if we're not getting the dreaming in that we need. And of course, you know, in Australia, we have an entire civilization which built itself on this idea that in fact the real world is the dreamed world, right? That that is the actual ultimate reality and that they, you know, it's not that this stuff is unimportant, but the important stuff happens in the dream time. And the Tibetan Buddhists also, you know, the, um, the Tibetan Buddhists have a lucid dream experience, a dream yoga, which people do know about, but they also have a liminal dream experience, which is you're going through the, the liminal dreaming and learning to keep your consciousness through hypnagogia, and which is easier, more accessible, um, and also a necessary part of this experience. And for them, so some people say, oh, well, you know, the waking world is is just as false as a dream and and their point is the dreaming world and the waking world are equally real 
And if you can go into the dreaming world and learn to have your consciousness about, learn, learn to be conscious. You know, I, I like this idea of conscious dreaming, which is different from lucid dreaming, conscious dreaming, where you have consciousness of experience and self, but you're not controlling it. You're not, I'm doing what I have my own agenda. I'm going to fly or go have sex or whatever it is that people do. That's mostly what they do in lucid dreams, you know, versus I'm, I have self-consciousness as I'm going, you know, through this experience. That's just full what's happening in my unconscious. Is part of the difficulty that we have with dreams and maybe one of the reasons that we're not giving them their due in our own lives is that we have a lot of trouble actually talking about our dreams and we can tell people that we had this crazy dream and that's kind of where the conversation ends why is it so hard for us to talk about our dreams and of course Oh, I had the most amazing, who is it, Oscar Wilde, who says that's the most worrisome line. I had the most amazing dream last night. We were like, oh, no, talk to me about their dreams. But but we haven't really been taught how to talk about our dreams in interesting ways. So rather than telling someone else the plot of my dream, which is like telling someone the plot of a TV show and it's stultifyingly dull, um, to instead talk about the experience of consciousness and what what is the what am I experiencing in dream world that's about consciousness we know what does it mean that I dream about my phone all the time which I do you know or the dreams that I have about uh, I have all these dreams about being inappropriately barefoot and I try to reenact them in the waking world as sort of a, you know, the continuity of consciousness between what is between waking and dream. And what is that? What is the continuity of consciousness? How, you know, if you're in a liminal dream state, you can be 20% awake. You can be 40% awake. You can be 80% awake, 20% dreaming, 80% dreaming. Like the, there, there's a real mix in this continuity of consciousness. And, and what does that mean? And what was I understanding about my own consciousness or seeing about what was happening through the experience of the dream? So people, and partly because we don't, the only ways we've talked about dreams in our culture have been in the service of waking success, you know, so um, therapy, you know. Well, the royal road into the unconscious. Exactly, you know, and it's all about being a more successful waking person as opposed to your own consciousness is the most amazing fine-tuned, wild, that everyone in the world ever has had, and yet is completely specific to you. And is, I mean, the hard problem, all of the most interesting things are around consciousness. And dreams are one of the most interesting interfaces that we have with it. But, But there hasn't really been much development of how we talk about it or how we think about it. So, With this new emphasis in liminal dreaming, and your book is clearly going to be part of a larger conversation, in a billion seconds, 30 years from now, do you reckon that we will have a generation of people who will have more capacity, more technique, and more language around being able to talk about this conversation that they're having with themselves, with their souls, with their consciousness, with their minds? 
one of the more interesting things that the kids are doing these days, you know, um, that I see coming out, I mean, especially being in the Bay Area, are, um, is around like uh, consciousness hacking. So like the consciousness hacking movement where people are thinking about what, how does, what does technology tell us about our consciousness? How can we uh, actually harness technology to interact with consciousness, to learn about consciousness, to do interesting things with consciousness. And so there's a whole, uh, there's a whole population out there of people who actually are now thinking about consciousness in different ways. And I am, I really am optimistic about those people and what they're doing and bringing conversations about co- consciousness to the surface. I mean, things like Michael Pollan's book on psychedelics was like New York Times bestseller list. And you're like, really? You know, it's like where my grandmother's like, oh, Jenny, I heard about that interesting book, you know, which is amazing. And so I think as people are starting to think more about consciousness, something like liminal dreaming, which is such a kind of no-brainer, easy way to go in and play with your mind that takes you, you know, 15 minutes, lie back, go into this wild space. I think people will find that it's a really wonderful language and means of exploring that space that that clearly is becoming more part of the cultural conversation. Jennifer Dupere, thank you very much for being our guest on The Next Billion Seconds. Mark Pesci, it is truly my pleasure. Jennifer Dumpere has authored a gentle, thoughtful book on liminal dreaming. And if you want to go deeper, learn more about it and Jennifer, click on the link to our website, nextbillionseconds.com, in the episode description. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about all the dreams you might be having as you fall asleep and wake up? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we're bringing you a story of automotive waste. We're well on the way to manufacturing the next billion cars. But what happens when these vehicles hit the scrap heap? Are we going to suffocate in all of the scrap and plastics and fluff we're creating? Find out next time on The Next Billion Cars. On the episode after that, we'll be back with the next billion seconds and the start of a three-part series that looks at the past, present, and future of computing. Then, on the episode after that, we'll drop another episode of the next billion cars. We've got great shows coming every week, and you'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Jennifer Dumpere for coming on our show. The next billion seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.